The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. So one week from tonight is Reformation Night. We start at about 5 o'clock. You want to come. It's going to be a blast. And then the Reformation Lecture is going to be on the radical apocalyptic Reformation. And if that sounds interesting to you, it should. Because um, we, let's just say that this is um, the, the darker side of the Reformation. And um, many years ago, Leonard... Verdine wrote about the so-called Anabaptists, and he, the name of the book was The Reformers and Their Stepchildren, and a uh, very apt description. And so we're going to be looking at some, um, like some crazy Reformation things. So um, tonight, though, what we're going to do, so then uh, after that, we'll get back to, and finish up Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, and that'll be really exciting Especially with so many people going home to be with the Lord, it is good to be reminded of the new heavens and the new earth. And Revelation 21 and 22 is absolutely marvelous. But what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about the story of the prophets. And so Sunday morning, I kind of set up Romans 11 with with sort of a history of Israel and the role of the prophets uh, in Israel's history. uh, apostasy. And then in the afternoon, of course, we looked at Zephaniah chapter 3 and kind of talked about the role of the prophets there. And so uh, tonight, I'm just going to give us what is hopefully going to be a helpful framework to better understand uh, prophetic literature in the Old Testament, because really the prophetic literature is is frankly the most difficult part of the Old Testament. And so we're just going to call this the story of the prophets. And of course, as you know, I just taught 40 hours of Old Testament prophets in Lusaka and then in Indola. And so I'm going to do this in one hour. And But but what I would do, and I, I failed to mention this last week at the report, Roger told me I should have Uh, told you about this. So what I do is, you know, I start off and I try to get interaction from the guys. Of course, they're they're sort of reserved at first. So I'll ask a few questions and nobody will say anything. And so then I'll say something like this. Do you really think I traveled 13,000 miles to ask you guys questions and not get any answer? And so then I reach into my backpack and I pull out a bag of beef jerky. And then I offer them a piece of jerky, which is an absolute delicacy for them. Now, one of the guys did almost eat the little silicon packet that sucks the oxygen out. He thought it was spices, but we we saved him in the nick of time. But uh, they love it. And so then, of course, they raise their hands whether they know the answers or not. And so I didn't bring any jerky with me, but um, hopefully we'll have some good interaction. So as we talk about the story of the prophets, we're going to uh, talk first of all about, um, I can never tell if I skip or not, we're going to talk about the covenantal foundation of the story of the prophets. So you come to the prophets, and of course, who do you think of when you think of the prophets? 
You mean Elisha? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't call him Elisha because Elisha is a girl's name. <laughs> All right. We know who you're talking about. All right. So uh, Elisha. Okay. <laughs> well, Isaiah. Right? So Isaiah is a big one, right? So when we think of the prophets, we normally think of Elijah and Elisha. We normally think of Isaiah. He leads the pack typically. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then of course the 12. And what I'm going to tell you is that the perspective on the prophets from the Old Testament is much broader than just Elijah, Elisha, major prophets, minor prophets, all right? So as, as you begin to think about the, the, the prophetic literature and what we're just going to call prophetism, all right, the, the, the God raising up prophets to speak to the nation, we have to start with the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, and it wasn't Isaiah or Elijah, it was Moses. Moses is actually the great prophet of the Old Testament, and he's the great prophet for a number of reasons, but the first is that Moses himself is is the fountainhead, in a sense, of prophetism in Israel. Uh, He is, think of him as the beginning of the stream of all prophetic ministry, And he's, he is that for, for a number of reasons. And so, by the way, if you would have asked a, a Jewish person in Paul's day, who was Israel's great prophet, they would have said Moses. And in fact, you might pick up these little details, for instance, in John chapter 4, when um, Jesus comes to the woman at the well, and they talk about Jesus as the prophet. Not just a prophet, the prophet. What are they expecting? They're expecting on the basis of Moses' own words, another prophet that will be just like Moses. That is going to be the prophet. And so Moses is the fountainhead. He is, first of all, um, unique as a revelatory spokesman in Israel's history. Um, he is not just, he's not just like the greatest of the prophets. He is unique as a prophet. So Moses and say, uh, Aaron and Miriam, Numbers chapter 12, you remember this passage. They're complaining about Moses for uh, what reason? You're like, okay, it's the book of Numbers. I don't exactly remember. Okay, so it's an interesting passage in Numbers 12. Their, their presenting problem with Moses is that he married an Ethiopian. Okay? That's the presenting problem. But the, the real issue was... Why does Moses think he's special? God speaks through us just like he does with Moses. And so it was really, it was a sense of jealousy, 
right? And so what God does, so they're all siblings, right? You got Moses and then you got Aaron and you got Miriam and God, here's the conversation. And this is my, this is my paraphrase. Uh, okay, you three outside right now. Okay, and so then um, what God says is that I have no one like Moses. If I have a prophet, I may speak to him in a vision or a dream, but with Moses, I speak to him face to face or literally mouth to mouth as a friend speaks to a friend. There was, in a sense, a directness of God's revelation to Moses that sets Moses apart from every other prophet, even the great Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. There was a uniqueness in Moses. And so that uniqueness is demonstrated a number of other times. You'll remember Moses goes up on the mountain and, and, and it is Moses who prays to God, I show, I, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And God says, no man sees my face and lives. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I will pass by my backwards parts. You'll see, but my face you won't. But here's the thing is that God, and here's the language, is that God knew Moses by name. And Moses saw the glory of God unlike anyone before him or after him. You see this uniqueness, for instance, in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses is, and this is the second time he does it, he establishes the standards for prophets. So if you're the prophet that establishes the standard for prophets, you are the prophet of the prophets, right? So in chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, he, he lays out what constitutes a false prophet, okay? How often do you got to be wrong to be a false prophet? Just once, what's the consequence? Death penalty. Do you know what would happen if we implemented that today? TBN wouldn't have anybody on television anymore. They'd all be stoned to death. And so Moses establishes the standard. But then in chapter 18, he, he again speaks in terms of what is required of a true prophet. But then he says, the Lord your God is going to raise up from among you a prophet like me. God's going to put his word in his mouth, and you must listen to him. And so who would that be? It's Jesus Christ. So, by the way, that's the way the apostles understood that, because in Acts 3, Peter quotes Deuteronomy 18 and actually says, Moses is talking about Jesus, all right? So you've got, so, so think of it this way. You've got Moses who is the fountainhead of all Old Testament prophetic ministry. He, he not only is unique as a revelatory spokesman, he sets the standard and he is actually the one who is the type of one who is to come. So you can think about it this way. You've got Moses and then drop down and then you've got all the other prophets 
And then you have Christ who is, in a sense, Moses equal, but greater than. All right? And so Moses is absolutely unique. In fact, how do we sum up the Old Testament? How does the Old Testament sum up the Old Testament? How does the New Testament sum up the Old Testament? And it is frequently with this expression, Moses and the prophets. All right? If you call the if you call one entire testament of the Bible Moses and the prophets Moses holds a special place in Israel's history. There's another reason why Moses ends up being so significant to a later prophetic ministry. And that is the covenant is the basis of the prophetic ministry. So every, every prophet that comes along after Moses, right? So who's, uh, just uh, a little quiz, who is the first significant prophet that comes along after Moses? Samuel, okay? Samuel. And <clears throat> so... Every prophet that comes along after Moses, and of course Samuel is sort of the, the, the figurehead of that, of that. Every single prophet prophesies. They have their prophetic ministry rooted in the Mosaic Covenant. That is the framework and the context of every single prophet who comes along after the time of Moses. And so what do I mean by that? So first of all, the prophets, and I can't remember what the slides look like. Oh, there we go. Oh, not quite yet. Um, We won't go there yet. So the prophets, first of all, are steeped in Torah. Okay, when I say Torah, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the Pentateuch, all right? So they're steeped in the books, five books of Moses. The prophets also were covenant enforcers, all right? I mentioned this Sunday afternoon. Um, So the prophets carry on their entire ministry based on the Mosaic covenant, all right? Now, what I mean by that is that every prophet that God raises up actually carries on inspired ministry within the Mosaic Covenant. And so when you think about the Mosaic Covenant, you have to think like this. There are the curses of the covenant and there are the blessings of the covenant, right? If you think about the way that the covenant works, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 give you the curses and the blessings of the covenant. What did you have to do to incur the blessings of the covenant? (laughs) No, that's not true. The answer is not nothing. You have to obey. Okay, you have to obey. You have to continue in covenant faithfulness and obedience in order to secure the blessings of the covenant, right? So then what about the covenant curses? What do you need to do to incur the curses of the covenant? Would you stop saying nothing? That's not an answer to anything. 
No, it doesn't make any sense. What? <laughs> okay. So let's, let's think about this for a second. So you've got the curses. And by the way, the list of curses is far longer than the list of blessings. The ultimate covenant curse is exile from the land. All right? It's not just simply breaking the covenant, right? Disobeying. Is there provision for disobedience to the covenant? Yes, priesthood and sacrifice, right? The covenant curses come upon not just the people who sin and then seek the remedy that God's provided. The covenant curses come upon a rebellious and an apostate people, okay? So, um, normally, if we, we had more time, I'd actually go through all the categories of covenant blessings. So, covenant blessings, think of it this way. We won't, we won't cover all of them, but covenant blessings look like this. Um, agricultural blessing. Everyone will have their own fig tree and their own vineyard. Is that a common, common imagery? The answer is yes. And you know what it goes right back to? It goes back to the covenant blessing. Restoration. Uh, fertility. Productivity. Prosperity. All of these things are covenant blessings that come to uh, the people on the basis of their obedience to the covenant. But then you take a look at the covenant curses, and the covenant curses would be, so, agricultural, right? So, one of the common language, uh, one of the common metaphors for the curse of the covenant is the fig tree doesn't blossom and there's no fruit on the vine, okay? Um, Think of locusts. Locusts would be a covenant curse. Locust invasion. What happens when you have a locust invasion? They destroy your crops. When the crops are destroyed, what ends up happening? Famine. When you have famine, then you end up with starvation. By the way, all of those things are covenant curses. Joel chapter 1, what does God do? Sends locusts. Okay? No more wine. Right? So, so everything, in fact, I, I wish I'd have brought the list. You go through the prophetic literature and all of the oracles of judgment are all rooted in the curses of the covenant. Okay? You can actually go through and look at all of the promised coming judgment and they're all rooted in covenant curses. On the other hand, all of the promises of blessing are promises of restoration and salvation, which are rooted in the covenant blessings, right? This, this is, in fact, I, I'll be so bold to say, this is the exclusive framework of the prophet's ministry, even as it uh, uh, impacts other nations, all right? 
So if you start, when you start thinking covenant curses, covenant blessings, and you start getting a list of those things. So for instance, being eaten by wild beasts, it's one of the curses of the covenant. God lets wild beasts go and then um, uh, the people are terrified and devoured. Ever wonder why, let's say, Daniel's thrown into a lion's den and nothing happens to him, but his opponents are thrown in and they're devoured. We read that as like, you know, a flannel graph story. No, it's a story that's actually calling upon the idea of the curse of the covenant. Daniel's exempt. He's not devoured. His enemies are. Destruction by fire is also a covenant curse, right? And you start thinking like this, Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They actually are being covenantally faithful. They're faced with a judgment of the covenant from Nebuchadnezzar. They're kept safe. Everybody else dies. All right. So, so this is pervasive, it's far more pervasive than we normally give, uh, give uh, credit for. So when the, the prophets come along, the prophets are actually spokesmen who called Yahweh's people back to obedience to the covenant. That was their goal. So they're in disobedience. So stop and think about, uh, think about the two most famous non-writing prophets, Elijah and Elisha. What are they doing? They are calling an apostate king and an apostate nation back to faithful obedience to Yahweh. That's why we call the prophets covenant prosecutors or or covenant enforcers. What they're doing is they are enforcing the terms of the covenant. Okay? And so... um, and, and this, by the way, this goes for absolutely all of them. In fact, one of the most common oracles in the prophetic literature is what's called a lawsuit oracle, where the, the, the prophet serves as God's prosecuting attorney. He brings the evidence of a broken covenant and then gives the sentence for that broken covenant. And then, of course, typically ends on a positive note of restoration and salvation, all right? And so this is, this is the context. And so the curses of the covenant shape the message of judgment, okay? and the blessings of the covenant shape the message of salvation and grace. And so the oracles are based on the covenant curses and the covenant blessings. So if you just take your Bibles and turn to Second Chronicles, um, first chapter 24. <clears throat> so what's the last book of Hebrew Bible? Second Chronicles, or actually just Chronicles. There is no first and second Chronicles in Hebrew Bible. It's just Chronicles. It's Kings and Chronicles. Two books, not four. All right. Last book of the Hebrew canon. And so you get down to the end, and basically the writer of Chronicles is giving a summary 
of Israel's history. And so in chapter 24, in verse 19, let's start at verse um, 17. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this, their guilt. So you remember uh, Sunday afternoon, I said that there's two, maybe it was Sunday morning, can't remember. There are two primary covenant violations. The first is the uh, breaking the first great commandment to love the Lord your God, which is typically idolatry. And then the second is to love your neighbors yourself. So the second major violation is injustice towards widows, orphans, the poor, and the stranger. And so here, Jehoiada dies and the house of Judah is plunged into idolatry, okay? You have to understand, idolatry is spiritual adultery, which is apostasy, all right? It's the worst, it's the worst sin, all right? If to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the greatest commandment, idolatry is the greatest sin. Verse 19, yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, though they testified against them, they would not listen. Chapter 36. Verse 15. This is... This is after uh, the Babylonian invasion. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. And so, this is, in a sense, the picture of of Israel's history. God establishes the covenant, offers covenant blessings, threatens covenant curses. The people continue to rebel. They continue to disobey. They continue to go into idolatry. And what does God do? God raises up covenant enforcers who come to them again and again and again and bring them messages of repentance or judgment, all right? And so, um, let's see. Yep, that covers that. Okay, oh, can you read that? I thought that would be bigger. All right, now we get to the historical and canonical story of the prophets. So one of the important things, can, can you read that, Elijah? These guys got like 2015 visions, so... So you have to locate the prophets historically. So Moses is the beginning. Samuel is the next major prophet, uh, prophetic figure. And then you have a series of court prophets, Nathan, Gad, so forth. 
And then you have uh, the, the, the division of the kingdom. So when the kingdom's divided, you remember that, right? Okay. So when um, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, um, actually, uh, you remember the story, right? So David, or Solomon dies, and Rehoboam, who is just raised with his snotty-nosed peers, okay, right? This is, that's not exactly the way the Bible puts it, but it's what the Bible says. Um, so Solomon's advisors go to Rehoboam, and they, he says, they say to him, um, you know, um, if you show more leniency and charity to the people who served your father so well, they'll serve you with gladness, right? And so what does uh, Rehoboam do? Rehoboam does exactly what every dumb young man does. He listens to the advice of the elders, and then he goes to his buddies that he's got gym memberships with, and he's like, hey, so what do you guys think? And of course, they're all testosterone-filled, arrogant, egotistical young men, which is, by the way, the bane of young manhood and present company excluded. And they say to him, you know what you need to tell these guys? You need to tell them, you know what? My pinky's bigger than my daddy's loins and uh, he whipped you with whips. I'm gonna whip you with scorpions. And then, of course, what happens? The kingdom actually, the 10 northern tribes pull away from Rehoboam, they follow Jeroboam, and you have a civil war. It is after the division of the kingdom that the rise of the prophets explodes. So you've got Moses, who's fountainhead, you've got Samuel, you've got the court prophets, you've got the division of the kingdom, and it's at the division of the kingdom that you then have the, uh, the rise of Elijah and Elisha. All right? So getting that, the, the history, right? Now, here's the thing, is that we have to remember the historical setting of the prophet that you're reading, so, I don't know if you guys can see this or not. So, you've got, you've got three major categories. Okay? They're all historically driven. You've got the prophets before the exile. You've got the prophets during the exile. And then you've got the prophets after the exile. Right? So, what does that tell you about the prophetic perspective of Israel's history Everything's in relationship to the exile. Exile is the ultimate covenant curse. 722 BC, the northern kingdom is destroyed by Assyria. The history is important. What is Assyria's uh, war policy? To actually take a conquered people and, and, and deport the vast majority of them, except for the poorest of the poor, and then to import prisoners of war from other nations into that conquered area. So that northern kingdom, all right, the capital was Samaria. After the fall of Samaria in 
722 BC, what happens? The Assyrians deport the vast majority of the northern kingdom and then import prisoners of war from all of their conquered territories. What was the goal? The goal is to breed out any sense of patriotism. That was their policy. It was that policy that gives us the Samaritan people. The Samaritans are the result of the Assyrian deportation, importation policy. So if you were a Jew, that is, you were from Judah, stop and think, 10 tribes north, Judah, you're Jewish Jew. (laughs) What are you going to think about a Samaritan? You're going to have both ethnic and religious hatred. So, every prophet that comes along, you have to locate them historically in terms of where they fit with the exile. Why? Is a prophet's message before the exile going to be different than a prophet's message during the exile? Is a prophet's message during the exile going to be different than the prophet's message after the exile? Yeah, so you've got to locate that prophet historically, all right? And so, um, sorry this is so small. So you've got prophets before the exile to the northern kingdom, to Israel. You have Amos in 760, roughly, and Hosea 755, right? So Amos and Hosea, northern kingdom before the exile. The prophets before the exile to Judah would be Joel, which is probably the earliest of the prophets, 835 B.C., Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and then we're going to throw Lamentations in there as well, even though it's not technically a prophetic book. It goes with Jeremiah. And so then notice, before the exile, you have down in the the left corner to Nineveh. Two prophets to Nineveh, one's famous, Jonah, the other not so much, Nahum. And so notice there's about a hundred year difference between Jonah and Nahum. Jonah is a message of um, uh, 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria is the biggest threat to Israel's peace and security. So by the way, and Daniel preached on Jonah shortly after he got here, right? And I don't remember if you brought this up, but if you didn't, you should have. One of the reasons, so you ask people, what's Jonah about? People will say, oh, well, Jonah's about uh, running from God, or something, you know, like that. And it's not what the point of Jonah is at all. In fact, Jonah runs away out of love 
for his people. What would Jonah want more than anything else for the peace and safety of his people, but the destruction of their biggest enemy? And so when Jonah runs, it's not because he's a scaredy cat. It's not because he doesn't like the food in Nineveh. It is because he sees it as if I run and don't preach, God will destroy Nineveh. Israel will be safe. Okay. By the way, we don't have time to do this, but there are so many connections to Christ. Who else is willing to bear the wrath of God for the good and the salvation of his people? And so when Jesus says in Matthew 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, and behold, something greater than Jonah's here. Right? By the way, who else do you know sleeps in the hull of a ship during a storm and doesn't wake up? All right, so the historical setting is absolutely critical. There is um, one, to Edom, Obadiah. How many of your favorite book of the Bible is Obadiah? Yeah, none of you, none of you. I, I met a guy in Zambia named Obadiah. I thought it was really cool, servant of Yahweh. Um, that is against Edom. And of course, Edom are the descendants of Esau and God brings judgment against them because they, they actually took delight in Israel's judgment. Okay. All right. So that's historically locate the, the, the prophet historically. Um, but there's another part and I, and we don't have any time to go through this, but this is this is one of the most fascinating things. So I was in Zambia and I was listening to Charlie, was it a Sunday school or a Wednesday night that you did? Um, and it was almost uh, exactly what I was talking to the guys about that, that day. So this is kind of an interesting thing. So you've got Hebrew Bible canonical order. You've got Torah, Nevi'im, and Katavim. And so you've got the law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay, that's how... That's how so, by the way, um, Hebrew Bible is sometimes called Tanakh, T-N-K, Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Katavim, Torah, Law, Prophets, Writings. Okay? Now, here's the interesting thing. Our canonical order in our English Bibles does not follow the Hebrew Bible. Okay? So, you've got Torah. This is five books of Moses, foundational, right? Absolutely foundational. What would the Bible be without Genesis? <laughs> Think about it. What, what would the Bible be without Exodus and Leviticus? What would the Bible be, by the way, without Numbers or Deuteronomy? Okay. Those books are foundational. They give us a, a covenant worldview foundation. And they give us a perspective on the covenant. The covenant is absolutely everything for the rest of redemptive history. All right? Your salvation is based in Torah. Okay? 
I'll show you if we have time. All right. So that's Torah. But then you've got the prophets, the Nevi'im. Here's the thing is they, they, they divide the prophets up into the former prophets and the latter prophets. Former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Now, do you know what, do you know what those four books do for us in order? They tell the story of Israel. In other words, the canonical order of Hebrew Bible of the, of the, um, of the, the former prophets gives us the whole history of Israel. So you've got Joshua, which is conquest and settlement. You've got Judges, which is chaos. And everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And there's no king in Israel. Then you go to Samuel. What's the message of Samuel? The monarchy. Okay. So are you seeing the progression? And then you go to Kings, which is not only the history of the, of the monarchy after the divided kingdom, but it then is also the destruction of the kingdom. That's how second Kings, our second Kings ends is with the destruction, the exile of the people. Now, at that point in Hebrew Bible, you have exile. So Kings ends in exile. And then you got a break in the storyline. Okay. So you see how this works. Foundation, Torah, former prophets, the history of Israel. The end of Kings, you get a break in the storyline. And then you get the latter prophets. And so what happens is you end with the historical emphasis on the exile. And then you go to the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12. That's the latter prophets. The 12, by the way, are the 12 minor prophets, but in Hebrew Bible, it's just one book. And it's in, in Hebrew Bible. So the order of minor prophets is the same for us. All right. And I taught you how to memorize that Sunday afternoon. Did you guys practice? Hojo, am ojo. Mina, haze, haze. Ma. I'll let somebody interpret that tongue. <laughs> yeah, I'll write it down. So you've got, and what do I mean by commentary? You've got the history of Israel. Now you've got the prophetic insight and commentary on Israel's history from the perspective of the covenant. Now, is, this, is this making sense the way that it hangs together? Okay. You see that? It's actually quite fascinating if you ask me. Then you go from latter prophets to the writings, which is, by the way, more commentary You've got the uh, wisdom literature, Psalms, Job, Proverbs. And then notice Ruth fits into uh, the writings. Why would Ruth be in the writings and not actually um, in the former prophets? Well, the answer is, is because it's giving you a little glimpse into life in the period of the judges that gives you messianic hope. Okay, so in other words, it's more commentary than history, right? Is this making sense? You you good? You feel like you're like learning something? So then you got Ruth, 
Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and then Esther. Now, where is Esther historically located? Where is Esther? She's in exile. Okay. Okay. Well, actually, it's after Babylon. Okay. She's, she's, she's in exile. So notice what happens. You've got the writings. You have a book that ends with Esther and Uncle Mordecai in exile. Okay. Again, commentary. It's a picture of life in exile. It's not a history of the exile. The Storyline resumes, and it resumes like this. Daniel. Why Daniel? Exile. Ezra Nehemiah. Return. It's actually really brilliant the way Hebrew canonical order tells a story. Okay? And so then you end with Chronicles. Now, <clears throat> since you're still in Chronicles, and I think Charlie brought this up um, as well. Look at Second Chronicles, the last chapter, chapter 36. Chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles is ending with the Babylonian captivity. All right? In fact, if you look at um, verse uh, 20, actually just, we could back up a lot, but we won't. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and and they were servants to him and to his sons under the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. By the way, guess what? That goes right back to the covenant curse in Leviticus 26. Okay? All All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. By the way, there's a reason why the Babylonian captivity or the exile lasts for 70 years. God's punishing them for violating the Sabbath and the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. So he punishes them in a sense with 10 Sabbaths or sabbatic years. So 70 years, all right? Now, this is, this is the amazing part. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and does anybody remember how Isaiah 45 describes Cyrus 200 years before Cyrus is born? My servant. Cyrus, my servant. Cyrus, my, ready, anointed. Amazing. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to, 
In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he went and sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all of his people, may the Lord God be with him and let him go up. Those are the last words of Hebrew Bible. The the invitation to return and to go up. Now, there's one other thing that's really kind of cool, and I have like no time to even uh, go into this, but you'll remember that... um, In the Babylonian captivity, what is it? King Zedekiah, right? He's actually taken and he's put in prison by Nebuchadnezzar. And then what happens? He's actually released from prison, is seated at the king's table, and eats at the king's table for the rest of his life. You have a son of David. Who else was in prison and then ends up being exalted and sitting at the king's table. Joseph. And Joseph does what? Saves Israel. Okay. So, so, you've got, so you've got these ending notes that are terrible, but yet the messianic hope is still alive. You still have a son of David. You have a son of David who is now being exalted even in a Babylonian kingdom. And then the last words of Hebrew Bible are, let him go up. And by the way, the very first words of the New Testament is, this is the Biblios Geneseos of Jesus Christu, son of Abraham, son of David. I mean, the connection is absolutely undeniable. And so, um, we have Christ in the prophetic shape of the New Testament and don't have any time for that. Um, And that's like the juiciest part. So what we'll do is, uh, not this Sunday, but a week from Sunday, we'll do that in Sunday school because what Jesus does is Jesus actually ties together Torah, the prophets, and the writings. What Jesus does is he ties together covenant curse and covenant blessing. All right? So, anyway, sorry you got to end there, but let me just tell you, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this, and it's absolutely glorious. All right? Okay. Well, I hope you found that interesting, and um, we'll pick it up in a week and a half or so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for, uh, thank you for the prophets, and we thank you that you used them to not only call Israel back to repentance, but also to point to the glories of Christ which were to come. And so, Lord, we pray that we would love our Bibles We pray that we would realize that no matter how well we think we know our Bibles, we're only scratching the surface. Give us a hunger to dig deeper. In Jesus' name, amen.
We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.